Lasso. So yesterday we turned our attention to the cultivation of equanimity in the sense of imper- imperturbability, or just an emotional balance, a calm, a cool, an evenness of mind that doesn't fluctuate you know, in an exaggerated or unhealthy way emotionally, or of course in terms of craving and hostility. And today we'll turn to the other side, the other aspect or facet of equanimity. Uh, same term is used, but with a very different meaning. Same term, upeksha in Sanskrit, or tanyom in Tibetan. And that is this evenness, a sense of evenness in terms of prioritization, of evaluation, a sense of evenness between self and other. As a direct antidote here, as one embarks on the Bodhisattva way of life, cultivating bodhicitta, the very first step. And in fact, the first discursive meditation I was ever taught uh, by Geshe Rapten, he said, almost all your problems rise from having an uneven attitude towards others, so develop evenness. Start now. You know, <laughs> I'm still working on it. You know. But there it is. So the tangnyom as the foundation, the evenness, the equality of self and others is the foundation for the development of bodhicitta, which is the foundation for everything that follows. Vajrayana, Mahayana, Dzogchen, and so forth. So that's where we'll turn our attention today. Now, a number of you who have been trained in Vajrayana, then you're very well aware of the enormous importance of Guru Yoga, authentic Guru Yoga. I've addressed this a little bit in the past. But you're aware also that the core of that practice is really having a sense, as much as you possibly can, a sense of the non-duality of your own mind with that of your guru's mind. So once again, it becomes quite obvious. If you're still reifying your own mind as being a little, you know, grungy little garbage pit, and that's my mind, whereas the guru's mind is pure and celestial, and now I want to merge the two minds, does anything strike you as a bit odd there? Like, please let the garbage dump of my, of my mind merge with the pure land of your mind, and don't mind all the trash that I bring to yours. It doesn't really make any sense, does it? So this is why the pure vision really has to be equal. <laughs> and you're not practicing Vajrayana Guru if you're still reifying yourself as a cruddy little sentient being with a crappy mind. Right? You have to unreify that. So, but there it is. When practiced authentically, the, the practice is enormously transformative and profound. Profound because it is profoundly transformative. So I thought this morning I'd like to invite, since I definitely don't want you to merge your mind with mine, I mean, I don't think that would be a grave disservice on my part. <laughs> like, I already had so many problems, and I have his problems too. <laughs> you know? I want to protect you from my mind. Uh, but I, but so, since that's not really a, a very reasonable option, uh, I thought I would invite in a guest, a special guest star, as they say in the entertainment industry, a person with whom you might be very happy to merge your mind with his. Okay, so the guest lecturer this morning, the guest meditated guide, uh, will be Shandadeva. I'm inviting him him here in person. Right, and what I'll be doing is reading verses 90 through 119, meditation chapter.
Don't know where that came from. Meditation chapter from the Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. His, his meditation, he's inviting us to join him in his own meditation, laying the foundation for bodhicitta. Please find a comfortable position. As always, let's begin by settling the body, speech, and mind in the natural state. To make our own minds suitable vessels. To hold and be transformed by the teachings on equanimity, the evenness, the equality of self and other. Let's now let Shantideva guide us in this practice. He so clearly speaks from his own experience. So we begin with verse 90. One should first earnestly meditate on the equality of oneself and others in this way. All equally experience suffering and happiness. And I must protect them as I do myself. Just as the body, which has many parts, owing to its divisions into arms and so forth, should be protected as a whole, so should this entire world, which is differentiated and yet has the nature of the same suffering and happiness. Although my suffering does not cause pain in others' bodies, nevertheless, that suffering is mine and is difficult to bear because of my attachment to myself.
an alternative translation, even though my agony does not hurt anyone else's body, that suffering of, of mine is unbearable because I cling to it as mine, as my own. Likewise, although I myself do not feel the suffering of another person, that suffering belongs to that person and is difficult for him to bear because of his attachment to himself. I should eliminate the suffering of others because it is suffering, just like my own suffering. I should take care of others because they are sentient beings, just as I am a sentient being. When happiness is equally dear to others and myself, then what is so special about me that I strive after happiness for myself alone? When fear and suffering are equally abhorrent to others and myself, then what is so special about me that I protect myself but not others?
if I do not protect them because I am not afflicted by their suffering, why do I protect my body from the suffering of a future body, which is not my pain, Or a variation, then why do I guard myself or guard against future suffering when it does not harm me now? A tiny commentary. How other is other? If we draw a strong line between ourselves and others, then shouldn't we draw an equally strong line between ourselves now and ourselves in the future, let alone future lives? The demarcation between self and other in space and time is merely a convention with no inherent existence of its own. Regarding the sense of our own personal identity in the future, Shantideva continues, the assumption that it is the same me, even then, is false. Because it is one person who has died and quite another who was born. If one thinks that the suffering that belongs to someone else is to be warded off by that person himself, then why does the hand protect the foot when the pain of the foot does not belong to the hand? If one argues that even though it is inappropriate, it happens because of grasping onto a self, our response is, with all one's might, one should avoid that which is inappropriate, whether it belongs to oneself or to another. In other words, avoid reification, avoid this dualistic grasping or delusional grasping, wherever it might crop up. 
the continuum of consciousness like a series and the aggregation of constituents like an army and the like are unreal, which is to say non-inherently existent. They are unreal since one who experiences suffering does not exist. To whom will that suffering belong? Of course, he's referring once again to inherent existence. Since one who experiences suffering does not exist, to whom will that suffering belong? All sufferings are without an owner because they are not different. They should be warded off simply because they are suffering. Why is any restriction made in this case? Why should suffering be prevented? Because everyone agrees. If it must be warded off, then all of it must be warded off. And if not, then this goes for oneself, as it does for everyone else. Shantideva raises the qualm. Much suffering comes from compassion. So why should one force it to arise? It's a brief commentary. When we profoundly care about others, then it seems the magnitude of our own suffering increases. Why go there? And his response, after seeing the suffering of the world, how can this suffering from compassion be considered great. If the suffering of many disappears because of the suffering of one, then a compassionate person should induce that suffering for his own sake and for the sake of others. Therefore, Supusha Chandra, although knowing the king's animosity, 
did not avoid his own suffering as a sacrifice for many people in misery. Thus, those whose mind streams are cultivated in meditation and who equally accept the suffering of others dive into the Avicii hell like swans into a pool of lotuses. They become oceans of joy when sentient beings are liberated. Have they not found fulfillment? What is the use of sterile liberation? Which is to say liberation for yourself alone. Thus, although working for the benefit of others, there is neither conceit nor dismay. And on account of the thirst for the single goal of benefiting others, there is no desire for the result of the maturation of one's own karma. Therefore, to the extent that I protect myself from disparagement, so shall I generate a spirit of protection and a spirit of compassion towards others. Due to habituation, there is a sense that I exist in the drops of blood and semen that belong to others, of course, namely one's parents, even though the being in question does not exist, even though, that is, there is no inherently existent self here. Why do I, why do I not also consider another's body as myself in the same way, since the otherness of my own body is not difficult to determine. Short commentary. If there's nothing in our own bodies that is inherently I or mine, but rather simply comes through habituation of identifying with our own body, 
then why not extend this to the bodies of others in exactly the same way? Neither the other's body nor our own body is intrinsically mine or intrinsically other. Acknowledging oneself as fault-ridden and others as oceans of virtue, one should contemplate renouncing one's own self-identity and accepting others. Or a variant translation, having recognized oneself as faulty and others as oceans of virtues, one should practice discarding self-grasping and accepting others. Just as the hands and the like are cherished because they are members of the body, why are embodied beings not cherished in the same way? For they are members of the world. Just as the notion of a self with regard to one's own body, which has no personal existence, is due to habituation, will the identity of oneself with others not arise out of habituation in the same way? Although working for the benefit of others in this way, There is neither conceit nor dismay. Even upon feeding oneself, expectation of reward does not arise. Therefore, just as you wish to protect yourself from pain, grief, and the like, so may you cultivate a spirit of protection and a spirit of compassion toward the world. Therefore, the protector Avalokita empowered his own name to remove even one's fear arising from timidity in front of an audience. One should not turn away from difficulty, since owing to the power of habituation, one may have no pleasure in the absence of something that one previously feared to hear mentioned. Now simply let your awareness rest in its own space and be still.
Malasso. Santa Davis seems to be gone, but I'm sure he was here a minute ago. Enjoy your day. See you a bit later.